Hello, my name is Justin DeClue and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club podcast. And today we're going to slow down a little bit and we're just going to, you know, try to hypnotize you with our words that may actually be run on sentences that we're not actually going to give a punctuation mark because we really want you to sit in it and take the podcast in a different way because we're talking about Bellatar. That's right. And this is the episode that has been long discussed, but that I actually thought we were maybe never going to do. Really? And that is because Bellatar's magnum opus, his most famous movie, Satan Tango from 1994, runs seven hours. I mean, that's less than most Netflix television series that people binge in a day. Yes, that's true. And that's very much the spirit with which I approached uh, Satan Tango this week, I'm sorry to say. We are, of course, still in lockdown as we record this. I always dreamed of seeing Satan Tango in a movie theater, and that's not how I viewed it this week, which I think is important to say up front, because it's a somewhat different experience to watch it split over three nights, rather than in one day in a theater with two intermissions. And also, some people, like Bellatar um, aficionado Jonathan Rosenbaum, would say that these movies need to be experienced with a crowd as well, so you can all be hypnotized as one instead of just the individual. And I gotta admit, if I had seen this movie in a theater... I think I would have fallen asleep, especially the Tiff Lightbox, which is warm. The seats are like very plush. And for the sound is so perfect that it just kind of like lulls me to sleep when I watch movies. Well, I know that I was kind of being lulled to sleep a couple times this week watching it anyway. And that's not a knock on the movie. That's just it's quite a somnambulant experience. I mean, the shots last so long and the music and the soundscape are kind of repetitive and it hypnotizes you. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm awake, I'm, I'm awake, I'm awake. I mean, the thing about Bellatar is he's one of those filmmakers that when you start reading people, like again, Jonathan Rosenbaum, you're like, whoa, there's this filmmaker out there who does long takes and his films are seven and a half hours long. And I mean, a film like Satan Tango, that is what will define Bellatar's career, that he made this big, long movie that's supposed to be watched in one chunk. And I mean, he's not alone. Like, Lav Diaz does super long movies as well. But Bellatar, I think, is in a space of his own. Well, I do miss having movie theaters around, though, because, like, movies like this, they definitely are ideal, like, when you're in a theater and it becomes kind of an out-of-body experience. You know, you have no distractions and you have nowhere to look but the gigantic screen and you're engulfed in the soundscape. And yeah, there is something very special about like seeing it with a huge audience of people and you were kind of, I guess, like forever bonded in some way with that audience for like having having been through it together, you know? And had you had any experience with Bellatar before sitting down and watching Satan Tango? Yes, I saw his, I think, to date most recent directorial effort. According to him, his last feature film directorial effort. Uh, that is The Turin Horse, which I was quite impressed by. I thought it was very powerful. And I also saw his... His version of Macbeth, which was all shot in one take on video and is an interesting film, although not considered one of his major works. You're like, oh, man, this one's like less than 90 minutes. I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> now, we're going to get into Satan Tango. Justin, what can you tell us about Bellatar's background? Well, Bellatar is from Hungary, and he is someone who came up through, you know, kind of regular filmmaking means. And what's interesting about his career is that the style that he is defined by is one that he came into a little bit later in his career. His earlier pictures were much more kind of like neorealist. People have compared it to like John Cassavetes type of pictures. The kind of long take, 
everything is in black and white kind of began with the film Damnation and then stuck with him until the last one, which we've previously mentioned, The Turin Horse. Now, I know that the movie that is widely considered his uh, transition film is 1984's Almanac of Fall, also known as Autumn Almanac. And that's the other movie we watched this week. It is a comparatively trim two hour. Felt longer. Yeah, it's not a bad movie or anything, but man, Satan Tango is, I think, a much easier sit than this one. Well, what's interesting interesting about Almanac is that you can feel Tar kind of figuring his way through the style that he will adopt and say, okay, this is how I'm going to tell these stories. And it's interesting as well, because this is him on his own. He directed and wrote it while his other films, he would work very closely with a bunch of collaborators, including his partner, Agnes uh, Ranitsky, who would be credited as co-director on many of his films and is also his editor, as well as the novelist, Lavlo, I'm going to say his name wrong, Krajnoskorke. Oof, boy, that was like a bunch of names all smashed together. And when you look at Almanac, it's missing that kind of wry sense of humor. There's some long takes in it, but it's also a little bit more conventionally shot. And it reminded me of like Steven Soderbergh's uh, second film, Kafka. The filmmaker trying to push kind of style as far as he can with colors and like one scene takes place like looking up through glass as if you're looking up through the floor. But it never really came to say very much other than people kind of somberly talking to each other for two hours. Yeah, so the film takes place entirely in one apartment and we follow a small number of characters, five to be exact. The main character is named Haiti. She's the owner of the home. She's an old rich woman who fears that everyone is out to get her money. And she has a very fractured relationship with her adult son. Uh, In addition to the son, there's... Hades nurse who helps her with her shots there's the nurse's boyfriend and there's the son's old professor who's like a boarder at the house and who is in desperate need of money and the movie across its two hours is structured as a number of dialogue scenes between the two characters the the scenes range from tender to violent although i would say that most of them are uh pretty pretty emotionally difficult miserable what's the point in keeping on going (laughs) these characters do not get along very well and i mean it is as as you mentioned most notable i think for the kind of stylistic flourishes that he he brings to it there's an almost dick tracy like use of color in the film yeah characters like bathed in red green and orange light there's that unusual shot as you said where it's like framed from the ground up with characters on like a glass floor but i think you're exactly right that what it lacks is humor mm-hmm. or even some humanity because like uh, tar in uh, almanac keeps like cutting into scenes where like something violent is happening like sex or even an argument but there's no base there for you to connect with anything you can't even kind of really project yourself on these characters because it's bouncing around so much compared to his other films and i think that's to the detriment of the most picture yeah i mean it's impeccably acted it's beautifully shot but it's hollow will it's hollow yeah i guess i mean possibly there are some who who love it so possibly for them there's some there's a little more here to chew on but i had a very i had a difficult time yeah because like as we were saying like more happens in it 
then Satan Tangled technically as far as like emotions bouncing between everyone but it does not have the same kind of power through its filmmaking its kind of precise storytelling or you know the just humor of it that Satan Tango has which we're gonna do a big jump and go right to Satan Tango skipping over uh, Damnation which was kind of the precursor to Satan Tango basically the story goes Bellatar read the novel that Laszlo wrote in Galley's form and he loved it so much that he wanted to adapt it into a movie but it took a number of years before they were able to do it so their first go at a collaboration was the film Damnation now Satan Tango I have the novel and I haven't read it all but I've written a lot of it and essentially the big difference between the movie or you know I'm gonna say difference but it could also be a transposition in the long takes is that it's the chapters are one ru- long run-on sentence throughout. So you basically have to center yourself through little hints of information that are coming at you, as opposed to how you usually read a novel where the paragraph breaks, give it a rhythm. Like even like dialogue is squished within the middle of sentences. It is not broken up throughout the text, which, you know, Tar, many people have said, translates that into long, unbroken takes. So let's consider the opening shot of Satan Tango. What we see first are eight minutes. Yes, eight minutes of a herd of cows milling around a village. And this shot introduces some of the film's aesthetic strategies. The movie's 439 minutes long, I think. It's 156 shots. 156 shots. One shot lasts over 10 minutes. So very long shots. And why are we looking at these cows? You know, the the shot announces basically that information is going to be frequently withheld, or at least not revealed to us in the traditional Hollywood way. And I think it also introduces the film's attitude to everything it will depict, which includes a lot of suffering and degradation and generally bad behavior on the part of its characters. It's coldly looking on. Uh, There's an essay in the Blu-ray written by Janice Lee and Jared Woodland, where they wrote something I like. They said, When a long take abandons you, it does so with a therapist's generous remoteness, asking your psyche to speak. I mean, you know, when you look at this opening take, at first your reaction is going to be, all right, when is something going to happen? Because that is what I've been trained as, you know, a cinema goer. When will the story start? When will the information that needs to be conveyed be given to me? And then you just see these cows mile around. You get excited. A new cow starts to come on the screen. But then the camera moves. And I think that's really important to, you know, when you pitch somebody Bellatar and why someone like me find him so fascinating, that it's important that the way that he moves his camera through these scenes says as much as the images that you're seeing on screen. <laughs> and I think that's what makes him so enticing to uh, people that learn, oh, there's a seven and a half hour movie. Then when you tie it to, it's also long takes. And there's these complex, very slow camera moves. And you're like, ooh, that sounds interesting. And like a lot of the you know, slow cinema directors like Siming Lang or Ho Shao Shen or Abbas Kiarostami, ones who really took the festival circuit by storm in the 90s. There's something about these shots that forces you to recalibrate your perception of beauty. You know, you're looking at these long and punishing shots of muddy and rainy uh, Hungarian villages, and you better 
find a way to find it beautiful. You know what I mean? I would say that it is beautiful in and of itself because a picturesque look of decay has its own textural kind of like, oh yeah, that is something that my eyes like to swallow. And there's a lot of that in this movie. And especially, you know, we're going to talk a lot about hypnotism watching this movie. Is that like the way the camera moves when you follow someone through a space and you're stuck with them throughout this time, your eyes kind of go to different things that are in the frame. For example, one of the big famous shots in this movie is just two guys walking down a street through a bunch of houses and there's just garbage all over the place as wind kicks it up. So you're sitting there watching it for like, I don't know, five minutes and you start to notice like, oh yeah, look, there's that piece of garbage. I'll just follow that with my eye. Where's it going to go? Where's this going to happen? And it creates, you know, not only a hypnotic vision, but one that is just enticing and that you just fall into. Yeah, I mean, we call a lot of movies hypnotic, but I don't think I've ever felt hypnotized by a movie quite like this. I mean, in in the classic sense of the word, like that shot you're talking about where the characters are just walking and the camera's following them, something about like the the movement in the frame and, you know, the way uh, the way the village passes on on each side of the frame and the way the characters move forward in the middle of the frame something about it like does something to your eyes and your head the way that like you know you are getting sleepy the plot of the film is easy to get into because there is one you're not just following random characters as they go along and it's actually very intertwined where you're you, you when you hear people talk about it, it's like ah it's a satan tango six steps forward six steps back and that's how the novel and the film is trying... Okay, yeah, forget that. Basically, it jumps around time and not in a complicated way either where you're like, what am I following? In ways that are very clear to the audience where you see things that you've already seen, but from a different perspective and by consequence of that, meaning changes. So for example, like at the beginning of the movie, it's all about a guy looking morosely out a window, having just slept with a woman. And then, uh-oh, you learn that her husband just got home. <laughs> a little bit of French farce? Nah, not really. But essentially that is the construct that you start from. Yeah, I mean, it has a plot and it's possible to, in fact, it's even easy to follow the plot. Although it can be a little bit disorienting in the early stages because the shots together, they don't convey narrative information, you know, in that kind of like cause an effect way that Hollywood movies do in their construction of shots. And also because of the structure, as you were saying, people often say it is structured like a tango, you know, going forwards and backwards. Like that can be a little bit disorienting early on where you're like, oh, wait a minute, we're seeing the last scene from another perspective. But yeah, you, eventually you eventually you get into it. I mean, it. the plot, like in its one line synopsis is that everybody in a town is freaked out because somebody they thought was dead is coming back. This person played by the composer of the film, Halle Vig playing the character of Iremias. That's right. I mean, it takes place in a peasant village in Hungary. It takes place after the fall of the Soviet Union, although the novel was written before the fall of the Soviet Union. And frankly, it could take place in either either time. Doesn't really matter. Uh, the villagers were all once partners in a farming collective, but the farming collective has collapsed. And now several of them are conspiring to steal all the money from the venture and flee the village together. But when Eremias appears, that throws a, a monkey wrench in the situation. And by the way, he, far from being the kind of Christ-like figure that we might first think he is, he's actually working with police to spy on the village. But they all they all 
greet him as like this kind of like savior figure. Yeah, I found it fascinating because at first it seems like they're scared of him coming. But later on, they're like, ah, throw the money away. It doesn't matter. He's coming. He's going to help us. Even though that, you know, he faked his own death. And, you know, he's probably going to trick us in some way, which, spoiler alert, he does. But, you know, with that plot in mind, we still got like seven hours to traverse. So there's a bunch of other stuff that happens. And it's mostly just following characters, including a doctor who is just drunk off his ass. And you get to follow him for like, mm, what, 25 minutes? This Orson Wellesian like figure. I think it takes like a full hour, basically. Like we meet him, you know, at his home and then he leaves his home, which he doesn't do very often. He leaves his home to try to get liquor. And on the way back, uh, the weather basically beats him down and he like collapses. That's the rough summary of that hour of footage but you know it's it, it's the music not the notes and <laughs> it, like that section is almost a dare to the audience because it comes at the end of the first part out of three and it's like okay maybe you've gotten into the rhythm of this and that you can see kind of the story developing but now we're going to trap you with this character who is just heavily breathing throughout all of it and struggling to do any kind of little action and now yeah you are shackled to this person and once you've gone through this you can get through anything else that this movie has to throw at you there's another important character at ck uh i don't know if that's how you pronounce her name but she's a, a little girl whose brother tricks her into planting a money tree you know burying some of her money in the ground and hopefully a tree will grow well that that's a trick and she figures out it was a trick she also you know d does a stupid thing that a child might do if they're left unsupervised she poisons her cat and she immediately feels very bad about that and uh, the combined forces of poisoning her cat and not being able to rescue the cat and losing her money and also seeing the villagers dancing mindlessly at a local tavern leads her to commit suicide, which sparks the second half of the film. And in, in saying that, I, I think what I want to get across is that the movie is not simply like an endurance test. Like that section of the film with her encompasses the broad range of emotions that are in this film. There is great suspense in that scene with her, with her cat. There's also quite a bit of humor, wry and sarcastic humor in that scene where like she sees the villagers dancing <laughs> and they're just dancing and dancing and dancing and she just stares at them through the window and and then we get to see that scene again, again. from the villagers perspective <laughs> and you just hear that that stupid music droning on and on and on as these as these villagers do their kind of like you know ridiculous not not very photogenic dancing and but, your eyes is just drawn to the guy who's balancing a piece of bread on his nose as he moves to and fro for i believe the dancing sequence is 11 minutes in its second form not just laughing at it either because there's there's been so much misery there's been so much decay and poverty in this village and so much betrayal like people cheating on people and this and that and it's like well at least they get to dance now right yeah at least they have you know to have fun even though rome is burning around them and you know they've kind of given up on any kind of responsibility because this village sucks it's just like a bunch of huts everything is covered in mud it's always raining everywhere there's nothing for these people to look forward to other than to be beaten down and tar wants you to consider these people as human beings as the camera just kind of like hangs on them every wrinkle in their face revealed looking at that vast landscape of their face and you're just reading a history that is never truly given to you as these kind of scenes play out so there's like a lot of different flavors that tar is working with whether it just be the long take you know these faces that you look at 
at or these distances that are traveled, even though eventually they're not really going anywhere because they'll just be stuck in a different kind of place. Jonathan Rosenbaum has a good line about the use of long takes. He says, Filmed in extremely long takes, the movie makes us share a lot of time as well as space with its characters, and the overall effect is to give a moral weight as well as a narrative weight to every shot. As detestable as these people are, we're so fully with them for such extended stretches that we can't help but feel deeply involved, even implicated in their various maneuvers. Even though that, like, Tar even takes time out of the narrative to remind you that they suck, like one scene where they're all packing up, they're going to go to a new farm and start anew, and they're just breaking a dresser. Uh, they do it for like five minutes, and then one of them goes, what are you doing? And they go, well, we don't want the gypsies to have yes, it. Yes, okay, and that is really funny, and... You know, a lot of the movie is really funny, particularly like there's a shaggy dog aspect to this movie, which is not necessarily what you want to hear if you're being told to watch a seven hour movie that it's like a shaggy dog story. But <laughs> but ne- but nevertheless, it- it's kind of funny sometimes how long these shots go like that one or towards the end of the movie where. I mean, it feels ridiculous to say spoiler warning for a movie like this, but, you know, later in the movie where the police, the bureaucrats are writing a report on what's happened and they're, they're correcting Eremius's uh, vulgar language and putting it into like state sanctioned words. And it's a very, very long scene as we watch the police do this, you know, reporting on this village, putting it into their report. And you realize just like how much suffering the state and Eremius has put on to these already beleaguered villagers in in the plot that he gets them to do in the second half of the film. And then it doesn't even matter at the end, you know? At the end of the day, like, the police summing it up is the whole point of the movie that this long, arduous journey which you took with all these people is just corrected by a bunch of bureaucrats who just want to get home as quickly as possible. Yeah, and it doesn't matter how much pain there's been, you know? No, it doesn't matter. It's just another sentence on a document that they're going to put and put in a drawer and then never think about again. I mean, so what do you think about, like, Tar's film? Like, you've seen The Turin Horse as well. What do you think he's trying to say through these movies, though? Like, he's not trying to make us suffer through these experiences or like, you know, you deserve this because human beings are terrible people. It's interesting. Like, it almost feels kind of cheap to say what what is he trying to say? I mean, I think the the range of emotions, as I mentioned earlier, that Satan Tango covers, it's a very bleak film. It's not a nihilistic film, exactly. Like, it's a movie that's capable of great tenderness for some of its characters. It's a movie that's capable of uh, pitying and, and having empathy for its characters, Obviously, Tar thinks that people are very easily corrupted by money and that when the going gets tough, people often don't actually look out for each other. There's often not really a great sense of solidarity. Uh, people often get very selfish in situations like that. You know, you can you can say that's bleak. And maybe it is, but, but, it's, but it's true. And it's, I guess, nice to spend a little time with a filmmaker who is this honest about human nature without necessarily being a misanthrope. I do wonder sometimes when I watch a movie like this is like, not who is this for, but like, who's going to watch this movie? Because it'll be people like us, nerds, who are probably fairly well off experiencing this, or like rich people in an art house cinema, almost daring themselves to watch it. Even though that I read an interview with Tar who said that the film was very popular in places like Budapest, where people would stand to watch the movie for seven and a half hours, only to see a reflection of kind of experiences that they've had in movies without any gloss to it or any kind of excuse to the storytelling norms 
films you would get from somewhere like Hollywood. I mean, I think there's something to that. I think with the proper context, many different kinds of people can appreciate a movie like this. I think one of the reasons why, like relatively well-off or educated people are the ones who tend to watch this movie are just like a variety of circumstances from the theaters that have the resources and the energy and and the willingness to invest in screening a movie like this to the uh, Blu-ray and DVD companies and festivals that have the willingness to put it out to the uh, media outlets that have have the willingness to cover it. What we're trying to say is that Netflix should just put this film on their streaming service and see who watches it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Hollywood is very powerful. Hollywood is very dominant, and there's a whole infrastructure, a whole apparatus in place to tell people what a well-made movie is and what what a good movie is and what a movie should be, and that is the Hollywood way. And I think, you know, for a lot of people... It might be a challenge, at least, to get out of that headspace and accept a movie that has a rhythm like this. But if you can, and if you're given the context, uh, the pleasures are there, and they're very accessible. And I mean, most people will approach this film as a dare, like, oh my god, I'm going to sit here and watch this movie. But it is so, there's so much to it, that it doesn't... it doesn't need to stay within that realm where you're like, I'm just going to finish it because it exists. There's just so much to absorb watching it. I mean, Susan Sontag said that, you know, I want to watch Satan Tango every year, which I don't know about that, but I can understand wanting to revisit this world, even with just the experiences in your own life, bringing a different context to reviewing it. Yeah. And just on top of everything else, it's like, it's a very, I think, pleasurable film to be in. I mean, it might not sound that way, but the images are so beautiful and stark and the the mood that the movie casts, the hypnotic spell that it casts, just the texture and the feel and the look and the sounds of the film are very pleasurable, much more pleasurable than, you know, a lot of Netflix originals. But don't bring any allegories to your readings of this film. Bellatar will have none of that. Is it not symbolic of uh, the sick soul of Europe or whatever? Don't bring that up because he hates it. He's like, nope, nothing. It's just what's on screen. That's it. But you know what? Maybe our the boring Netflix movies and TV shows that we're watching that all have that like colorless flavor. That is, you know, the new kind of entertainment with all of the life sucked out. I mean, of it. you want an endurance test? Check out Ben Wheatley's Rebecca. <laughs> All right. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter goes Hello, Justin and Will. First and foremost, thanks for the great podcast. I teach courses in film and media criticism analysis here in Chicago. Can we have a job? Are you, are, do you have that position? And as I've been navigating the harsh and alienating frontier of online learning this past year, nothing has helped keep my head in the game quite like butt chugging the entire important butt chugging <laughs> would not recommend put the earbuds in your ear <laughs> the entire important cinema club and michael and us back catalog no doubt like most of your listeners. hey uh, you should also listen to no such thing as a bad movie i'm just throwing that out there oh yeah especially the newest episode that we did where hopefully a new cult is born all right so no doubt like most of your listeners i have a long wish list of humble content requests chief amongst them though probably because it would align most closely with my own research interest is an episode on the Fairly Brothers. Since you guys have shown such a keen and sophisticated interest in lowbrow film comedy, this seems right up your alley. After all, let's face it, the Fairleys were the only real auteurs of the subgenre in the 90s and early aughts. I'd love to hear your takes on how their classics 
uh, there's air quotes around it, hold up, as well as there's anything salvageable from their second decade as they struggle to make their way in a landscape increasingly dominated by Jed Apatow's industrial complex. I'm especially interested in hearing how you feel about movie 43, uh, much despised and little seen curio that I submit has a handful of very funny moments. Secondarily, I'd also like to hear you discuss Claudia Wheel's indie masterpiece Girlfriends and the non-solo oeuvre of Pasolini, uh, though perhaps that's more fitted to Michael and us. How dare you? Thanks, Ben. Uh, well, we, we did talk about Sallow on Michael and us at one point, but I mean, Pasolini. <laughs> normie talk, <laughs> Sallow. That beloved normie classic, Sallow. Yeah, that's um, like a normie cinephile take. Girlfriends, I weirdly talked about this on a TV show that we did for Hollywood Suite, a local Canadian television series. Uh, so check that out. I forget what the series was called. It's called A Year in Film. That was the, uh, what, what year was that? Was that 1978, I believe? <sighs> I don't remember. They had us in a studio and we talked about like 30 movies for three hours. That's right. In- including Debbie Does Dallas. We talked about that <laughs> yes, too. Hey, right. and we're probably going to be on the next season of that too. It's a good channel. We recommend it. As for, you know, uh, all the others, I mean, yeah, Pasolini would be great. And you don't have to sell me on the Fairly Brothers. Oh, that's easy. Yeah, I feel like that's one we'd probably uh, kind of parse through in like Patreon episodes because, you know, me, myself, and Irene. Uh, there's something about Mary could definitely easily be a Patreon episode. Yeah, although there might be something to doing like the Fairly Brothers as their own topic. Yeah, we want those clicks. People are going to be like, they're doing everything about the Fairly Brothers? Uh, you know, that's a good idea. I'm adding this to the list. And just thinking about it, like, there's enough there, like Dumb and Dumber, Kingpin, uh, who could forget Osmosis Jones? And he's right, too, that, like, the Fairly Brothers had a couple of, like, gigantic hits early on, and then... You know, a lot of stuff that weren't really hits. Like, after there's something about Mary, they never really had another one that quite hit the same way again. Uh, Aside from Green Book, I guess. Uh, And who could forget, you know, their great film, The Three Stooges? Well, I mean, that, I think, is, like, maybe their best film. Mm, That and Dumb and Dumber, you know, they'd have to go head to head. Dumb and Dumber's good, but I love The Three Stooges, yeah. All right, so thank you very much for that letter. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And what are we doing on our Patreon this week? We are hanging out with Frank, Dean, Sammy, um, Joey Bishop, I believe. We are talking about the Rat Pack classic, and consider classic in air quotes, Ocean's Eleven. And do we have any affinity for the for the dudes? No, not at all. Neither of us do. So <laughs> listen to us kind of try to uh, traverse why someone would like the Rat Packs, and do they hold up to this day? <laughs> well... No. We're talking about endurance tests, folks. I'd rather watch St. Tango again than have to sit through Ocean's Eleven, 1960. <laughs> so that's what we're doing on Patreon. That's $5 a month at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And uh, what are we doing next week, Justin? Next week, we're doing Ralph Bakshi. Probably, I mean, definitely the most financially successful independent feature film animator. He is the director of such films as Fritz the Cat and... I don't know if we're going to watch this one, but the animated version of Lord of the Rings. No, we definitely will not watch the animated version of Lord of the Rings. What I would recommend is we definitely got to do Fritz the Cat. How about American Pop and Cool World? All right. Sounds good. I've never seen Cool World. (laughs) It is not good. Uh, Ralph Bakshi, I find fascinating. And he's a filmmaker that as a teenager, I could not get into any of his films. And I bought them all. I bought Heavy Traffic. I bought um, Wizards. I bought The Incredibly Dull Fire and Ice. Oh, I've seen that one. Ugh, What a piece of shit. (laughs) New City. But you know what? I feel like there'll be more for me to like now watching it in my old age 
age. Like I already checked out like the first 15 minutes of Wizards and I was like, oh, I knew I didn't like this when I was a teenager, but you know, I like it now. So that's what we'll be doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin DeClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin here, interrupting briefly to thank some of our new Patreon subscribers who include Dan Dillon, Justin Wise, Athens Horse Party, Ramon, Cameron McGowan, Elias Brander, Louis Philip Gagnon, Robbie Baskins, Jamie Wright, Charlie Roxburg, and Iad Bidwi. Thank you so much for becoming Patreon subscribers. We could not do it without you. And I'd just like to announce that I will be hosting another film screening online this Friday, January 29th. For more information, just follow me on Twitter at DeCluj, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, and the letter J. I will be sharing more information on there, and it will also be shared on the Important Cinema Club Twitter and Facebook group. We now return you to your regular scheduled programming. Well, I was on Twitter this week, which is really all the only place I can go now uh, <laughs> in lockdown. And I had a funny run in with a filmmaker. Not a bad run in, but it's like... Oh, the, so it wasn't like the filmmaker of um, that Adam Sandler movie that yelled at you? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. The Sandy Wexler director. Yeah, I didn't even I didn't even mean to disrespect him. Run in is the wrong term. I had an encounter with a filmmaker. And this is the amazing thing about this crazy online world that we live in now. It's like you can all of a sudden just like you know, be sitting there at your at your virtual online bar and then who comes up but a famous filmmaker. I was I was in some thread where we were talking about uh, Jason Reitman, you know, classic low hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, Jason Reitman. Taking a swing yeah. at that pinata. It's not even a pinata. It's like on the ground. He's just smashing it with a giant mallet. Something fun to do, you know, on your phone while while you're, you know, trying to watch Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> yeah, in your living room, nowhere to go. Giant snowstorm outside. Even if you could, there's a virus that's only getting more. More infectious. Anyway, where you I'm on the tip of my toes. Who did you run into, Will? Well, somebody said something about like, well, at least he's a lot better than that misogynist Neil LeBute. You know, that guy, that guy really sucks. Y- you know Neil LeBute, right? Did he tag Neil LeBute in the comment? No. Okay. Don't tag people, please. Unless you're like saying, oh, this Gold Ninja video uh, movie release is great. If you're insulting someone, what are you doing if you're tagging yeah, them? Yeah, that's terrible. That's an instant block. Wait, uh, let me get uh, on my Twitter soapbox. Why do people always post that they're blocked from people that they're insulting? Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not impressive. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's like, well, I didn't think they were going to block me for insulting them to their face. But anyway, so Neil LeBlue. Uh, I can't say his name for some reason. He comes barging into the conversation. That's right. And people might need a quick refresher on who he is. Neil LeBute took Sundance by storm in the 90s. With the Wicker Man, well, right? Well, yeah, the, the Wicker Man came, but he started with In the Company of Men and Your Friends and Neighbors. He He's a playwright also. He kind of a poor man's David Mamet, in my opinion. Yeah, pretty much. And yeah, he, he made The Wicker Man with Nicolas Cage, as well as some other films. Uh, and... Uh, all of a sudden, this guy tweeting from the account of Contemptible Entertainment, which I guess is his production company. And first of all, that is such a fucking Neil LeBute move that he would call his his production company Contemptible Entertainment. It's like it's like, yeah, I I'm a bad widow boy. Uh, my company's called Contemptible Entertainment. Were you ever a fan of Neil LeBute? Um, yeah, I I would say that I was interested in him when I was. Um, in my early 20s, I would say. I thought some of his movies were interesting, but I remember seeing, I think it was The Shape of Things, and I remember seeing that, and I remember thinking, okay, this guy actually really does have a problem with women. You're like, you know, I could look 
past Nurse Betty, but once he made that, you know, all-black remake of Death at the Funeral, then all bets were off. I, I did see that one, actually, and, uh, you know, that had some laughs. The Contemptible Entertainment account responded to this person who was trashing Neil LeBute and said something like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry you don't like my films and plays, uh, this and that. Hashtag Neil LeBute. And I'm like, Contemptible Entertainment? Wait, is this? Is this? And then I searched Contemptible Entertainment, and it's like, it's his production company. And uh, I said, excuse me, sir, are you are you the real Neil LeBute? And he's like, yes, yes, I am. Then people started being like, hey, Neil, uh, uh, Lakeview Terrace was underrated. He's like, oh, thank you. And then I said, like, well, look at that. You guys are uh, kissing his ass now. And so then I said, come on, guys, let's start roasting Neil. And then Contemptible Entertainment, also known as Neil LeBute, responds and says, don't worry, Will, I get plenty of that too, day in and day out. Looks like somebody already blocked me for responding to their original tweet. So your wish is coming true. And I saw that and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> he must like I've seen like Neil Butte. He gets roasted all the time, like endlessly. And it's not like he's on a pedestal either that it's like I'm looking down from all my success. There's a guy who like from 2013, 2015, he directed like six episodes of Hell on Wheels. Yeah. OK. And I saw I saw him tweet that. And it's like I, I started to feel a little bad. <laughs> like, Oh, wow. These people on the Internet are real. OK, but here's here's what I would say to Neil Butte. I would say. Don't name search. Please, yeah, don't name search. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Keep making your, like, misogynistic movies in peace. I think it's really funny, though, that... Well, uh, maybe it's not all that funny that he responded being like, Oh, don't worry, Will. I, I got the haters. I hear it day in and day out. It's what keeps me going, Will. <laughs> Wait, I have questions about the guy that's like, you know, at least he's no Neil LeBoot. How did that come up? How did he associate Jason Reitman with that guy? I can't remember. D- does, it, does it matter, no, though? No, it doesn't matter in this tangled spider web of Satan tango that we call life. <laughs> I mean, that is someone that I would have never wanted to chat on with Twitter, and I'm very surprised that he's on there as well. I mean, the sheer randomness of it is what made what made me laugh it's like of all the filmmakers to pop up in your manchies it's neil labute so who's next you think clint eastwood no it'll, it'll probably be like ed burns like what's another <laughs> N- neil labute level filmmaker so that is the, you know that is my cautionary tale to all you folks out there who would trash neil labute on the internet he's out there he's a human being too yeah he's a human being he's out there he's he's seen your tweets and he according to him he gets it day in and day out so yeah you don't need to ironically jump on your computer now and tweet at him because you heard us talking about it it's not funny and we'll look down on you for it that's right don't be mean to neil labute no (laughs) can't we just all get along that was the theme of company of men right yeah that's right